Chapters five and six of Moments with Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter five from Adventures of Tom Sawyer, eighteen seventy four to eighteen seventy five. A speculation in whitewash. Saturday morning was come, and all the summer world was bright and fresh, and brimming with life. There was a song in every heart and if the heart was young, the music issued at the lips. There was cheer in every face, and a spring in every step. The locust trees were in bloom, and the fragrance of the blossoms filled the air. Cardiff Hill, beyond the village and above it, was green with vegetation, and it lay just far enough away to seem a delectable land, dreamy, reposeful, and inviting. Tom appeared on the sidewalk with a bucket of whitewash and a long-handled brush. He surveyed the fence, and all gladness left him, and a deep melancholy settled down upon his spirit. Thirty yards of board fence nine feet high. Life to him seemed hollow, and existence but a burden. Sighing, he dipped his brush and passed it along the topmost plank. Repeated the operation. Did it again compared the insignificant whitewashed streak with the far-reaching continent of unwhitewashed fence, and sat down on a tree-box discouraged. Jim came skipping out at the gate with a tin pail, and singing Buffalo Gals. Bringing water from the town pump had always been hateful work in Tom's eyes before, but now it did not strike him so. He remembered that there was company at the pump white mulatto and negro boys and girls were always there waiting their turns resting trading playthings quarrelling fighting skylarking and he remembered that although the pump was only a hundred and fifty yards off jim never got back with a bucket of water under an hour and even then somebody generally had to go after him tom said say jim i'll fetch the water if you'll whitewash some Jim shook his head and said, "'Can't, Mars Tom. Old Missus, she told me I got to go and get dis water and not stop foolin' round with anybody. She say she speck Mars Tom going to ax me to whitewash, and so she told me go long and tend to my own business. She loud she'd tend to the whitewashin'. "'Oh, never you mind what she said, Jim. That's the way she always talks. Give me the bucket.' I won't be gone only a minute. She won't ever know. Oh, I dasn't, Mars Tom. Old Missus, she'd taken tarred a head offen me. Deed she would. She, she never licks anybody. Wax em over the head with her thimble. And who cares for that, I'd like to know. She talks awful. But talk don't hurt. Anyway, it don't if she don't cry, Jim. I'll give you a marvel. I'll give you a white alley. Jim began to waver. White alley, Jim, and it's a bully taw. My, dat's a mighty gay marvel, I tell you. But Mars Tom, I's powerful afraid, old missus. And besides, if you will, I'll show you my sore toe. Jim was only human. This attraction was too much for him. He put down his pail, took the white alley, and bent over the toe with absorbing interest while the bandage was being unwound. In another moment he was flying down the street with his pail and a tingling rear, Tom was whitewashing with vigor, and Aunt Polly was retiring from the field 
with a slipper in her hand and triumph in her eye. But Tom's energy did not last. He began to think of the fun he had planned for this day, and his sorrows multiplied. Soon the free boys would come tripping along on all sorts of delicious expeditions, and they would make a world of fun of him for having to work. The very thought of it burnt him like fire. He got out his worldly wealth and examined it, bits of toys, marbles, and trash. Enough to buy an exchange of work, maybe, but not half enough to buy so much as half an hour of pure freedom. So he returned his straightened means to his pocket, and gave up the idea of trying to buy the boys. At this dark and hopeless moment an inspiration burst upon him, nothing less than a great magnificent inspiration. He took up his brush and went tranquilly to work. Ben Rogers hove in sight presently, the very boy of all boys whose ridicule he had been dreading. Ben's gait was the hop, skip, and jump, proof enough that his heart was light and his anticipations high. He was eating an apple, and giving a long melodious whoop at intervals, followed by a deep-toned ding-dong-dong, ding-dong-dong, for he was impersonating a steamboat. As he drew near, he slackened speed, took the middle of the street, leaned far over to starboard, and rounded too, ponderously and with laborious pomp and circumstance, for he was personating the big Missouri, and considered himself to be drawing nine feet of water. He was the boat and captain and engine bells combined, so he had to imagine himself standing on his own hurricane deck, giving the orders and executing them. Stop her, sir! Ting-a-ling-ling! -ling. The headway ran almost out, and he drew up slowly toward the sidewalk. Ship up to back! Ting-a-ling-ling! -ling. His arms straightened and stiffened down his sides. Set her back on the starboard! Ting-a-ling-ling! Chow! Ch-chow! Wow! Chow! His right hand, meantime, describing stately circles, for it was representing a forty-foot wheel. Let her go back on the labboard! Ting-a-ling-ling! Chow, chow, chow! The left hand began to describe circles. Stop the starboard! Ting-a-ling-ling! Stop the labboard! Come ahead on the starboard! Stop her! Let your outside turn over slow! Ting-a-ling-ling! Chow-ow-ow! Get out that headline! Lively now! Come, out with your spring line! What are you about there? Take a turn round that stump with the bite of it. Stand by that stage now. Let her go. Done with the engine, sir. Ting-a-ling-ling. Shht, shht, shht. Trying the gauge cocks. Tom went on whitewashing, paid no attention to the steamboat. Ben stared a moment and then said, Hiya! You're up a stump, ain't you? No answer. Tom surveyed his last touch with the eye of an artist. Then he gave his brush another gentle sweep, and surveyed the result, as before. Ben ranged up alongside him. Tom's mouth watered for the apple, but he stuck to his work. Ben said, "'Hello, old chap. You got to work, hey?' Tom wheeled suddenly and said, "'Why, it's you, Ben. I warn't noticing.' "'Say, I'm going in a-swimming, I am. Don't you wish you could?' but of course you'd rather work, wouldn't you? Course you would." Tom contemplated the boy a bit and said, "'What do you call work?' "'Why, ain't that work?' 
Tom resumed his whitewashing, and answered carelessly, "'Well, maybe it is, and maybe it ain't. All I know is, it suits Tom Sawyer.' "'Oh, come now, you don't mean to let on that you like it.' The brush continued to move. "'Like it? Well, I don't see why I oughtn't to like it. Does a boy get a chance to whitewash a fence every day?' That put the thing in a new light. Ben stopped nibbling his apple. Tom swept his brush daintily, added a touch here and there, criticized the effect again, Ben watching every move, and getting more and more interested, more and more absorbed. Presently he said, "'Say, Tom, let me whitewash a little.' Tom considered, was about to consent, but he altered his mind. "'No, no, I reckon it wouldn't hardly do, Ben. You see, Aunt Polly's awful particular about this fence, right here on the street, you know. But if it was the back fence I wouldn't mind, and she wouldn't. Yes, she's awful particular about this fence. It's got to be done very careful. I reckon there ain't one boy in a thousand, maybe two thousand, that can do the way it's got to be done. No, is that so? Oh, come now, let me just try. Only just a little. I'd let you, if you was me, Tom. Ben, I'd like to, honest injun, but Aunt Polly, well, Jim wanted to do it, but she wouldn't let him. Sid wanted to do it, and she wouldn't let Sid. Now don't you see how I'm fixed? If you was to tackle this fence, and anything was to happen to it? Oh, shucks, I'd be just as careful. Now let me try. Say, I'll give you the core of my apple. Well, here. No, Ben, now don't. I'm afeard. I'll give you all of it. Tom gave up the brush with reluctance in his face, but alacrity in his heart. And while the late steamer, Big Missouri, worked and sweated in the sun, the retired artist sat on a barrel in the shade, close by, dangled his legs, munched his apple, and planned the slaughter of more innocents. There was no lack of material. Boys happened along every little while. They came to jeer, but remained to whitewash. By the time Ben was fagged out, Tom had traded the next chance to Billy Fisher for a kite, in good repair. And when he played out, Johnny Miller bought in for a dead rat and a string to swing it with, and so on and so on, hour after hour. And when the middle of the afternoon came, from being a poor poverty-stricken boy in the morning, Tom was literally rolling in wealth. He had, beside the things before mentioned, twelve marbles, part of a Jew's harp, a piece of blue-bottle glass to look through, a spool-cannon, a key that wouldn't unlock anything, a fragment of chalk, a glass stopper of a decanter, a tin soldier, a couple of tadpoles, six firecrackers, a kitten with only one eye, a brass doorknob, a dog-collar, but no dog, the handle of a knife, four pieces of orange peel, and a dilapidated old window-sash. He had had a nice, good, idle time all the while, plenty of company, and the fence had three coats of whitewash on it. If he hadn't run out of whitewash, he would have bankrupted every boy in the village. Tom Falls in Love As he was passing by the house where Jeff Thatcher lived, he saw a new girl in the garden a lovely little blue-eyed creature, with yellow hair plaited in two long tails, white summer frock and embroidered pantalettes. 
the fresh-crowned hero fell without firing a shot. A certain Amy Lawrence vanished out of his heart, and left not even a memory of herself behind. He had thought he loved her to distraction. He had regarded his passion as adoration, and, behold, it was only a poor little evanescent partiality. He had been months winning her. She had confessed hardly a week ago. He had been the happiest and proudest boy in the world only seven short days, and here, in one instant of time, she had gone out of his heart like a casual stranger whose visit is done. He worshipped this new angel with furtive eye, till he saw that she had discovered him. Then he pretended he did not know she was present, and began to show off in all sorts of absurd boyish ways, in order to win her admiration. He kept up this grotesque foolishness for some time, but by and by, while he was in the midst of some dangerous gymnastic performances, he glanced aside and saw that the little girl was wending her way toward the house. Tom came up to the fence and leaned on it, grieving, and hoping she would tarry yet a while longer. She halted a moment on the steps, and then moved toward the door. Tom heaved a great sigh as she put her foot on the threshold. But his face lit up, right away, for she tossed a pansy over the fence a moment before she disappeared. Huck Huckleberry came and went, at his own free will. He slept on doorsteps in fine weather, and in empty hogsheads in wet. He did not have to go to school or to church, or call any being master, or obey anybody. He could go fishing or swimming, when and where he chose, and stay as long as it suited him. Nobody forbade him to fight, he could sit up as late as he pleased. He was always the first that went barefoot in the spring, and the last to resume leather in the fall. He never had to wash, nor put on clean clothes. He could swear wonderfully. In a word, everything that goes to make life precious, that boy had. So thought every harassed, hampered, respectable boy in St. Petersburg. THE PIRATE'S ISLAND They built a fire against the side of a great log, twenty or thirty steps within the sombre depths of the forest, and then cooked some bacon in the frying-pan for supper, and used up half of the corn-pone stock they had brought. It seemed glorious sport to be feasting in that wild free way in the virgin forest of an unexplored and uninhabited island, far from the haunts of men, and they said they never would return to civilization. The climbing fire lit up their faces and threw its ruddy glare upon the pillared tree-trunks of their forest temple, and upon the varnished foliage and festooning vines. Gradually their talk died out, and drowsiness began to steal upon the eyelids of the little waifs. The pipe dropped from the fingers of the red-handed, and he slept the sleep of the conscience-free and the weary. The terror of the seas and the black avenger of the Spanish main had more difficulty in getting to sleep. They said their prayers inwardly, and lying down, since there was nobody there with authority to make them kneel and recite aloud. In truth, they had a mind not to say them at all, but they were afraid to proceed to such lengths as that, lest they might call down a sudden and special thunderbolt from heaven. When Tom awoke in the morning, he wondered where he was. He sat up and rubbed his eyes and looked around. Then he comprehended. It was the cool grey dawn, and there was a delicious sense of repose and peace 
in the deep pervading calm and silence of the woods. Not a leaf stirred, not a sound obtruded upon great nature's meditation. Beaded dewdrops stood upon the leaves and grasses. A white layer of ashes covered the fire, and a thin blue breath of smoke rose straight into the air. Joe and Huck still slept. Tom Learns to Smoke After a dainty egg and fish dinner, Tom said he wanted to learn to smoke now. Joe caught at the idea, and said he would like to try too. So Huck made pipes and filled them. These novices had never smoked anything before but cigars made of grapevine, and they bit the tongue and were not considered manly anyway. Now they stretched themselves out on their elbows and began to puff, charily, and with slender confidence. The smoke had an unpleasant taste, and they gagged a little, but Tom said, "'Why, it's just as easy. If I'd a knowed this was all, I'd a learnt long ago.' "'So would I,' said Joe. "'It's just nothing. "'Why, many a time I've looked at people smoking, "'and thought, well, I wish I could do that, "'but I never thought I could,' said Tom. "'That's just the way with me, ain't it, Huck? "'You've heard me talk just that way, haven't you, Huck? "'I leave it to Huck if I haven't.' "'Yes, heaps of times,' said Huck. "'Well, I have too,' said Tom. "'Oh, hundreds of times.' once down by the slaughterhouse. Don't you remember, Huck? Bob Tanner was there, and Johnny Miller, and Jeff Thatcher, when I said it. Don't you remember, Huck, about me saying that? Yes, that's so, said Huck. That was the day after I lost a white alley. No, twas the day before. There, I told you so, said Tom. Huck recollects it. I believe I could smoke this pipe all day, said Joe. I don't feel sick. "'Neither do I,' said Tom. "'I could smoke it all day. "'But I bet you Jeff Thatcher couldn't.' "'Jeff Thatcher? "'Why, he'd keel over just with two draws. "'Just let him try it once. "'He'd see.' "'I bet he would. "'And Johnny Miller. "'I wish I could see Johnny Miller tackle it once.' "'Oh, don't I,' said Joe. "'Why, I bet you Johnny Miller "'couldn't any more do this than nothing. "'Just one little snifter would fetch him.' Deed it would, Joe. Say, I wish the boys could see us now. So do I. Say, boys, don't say anything about it, and sometime when they're around, I'll come up to you and say, Joe, got a pipe? I want a smoke. And you'll say, kind of careless-like, as if it weren't anything, you'll say, Yes, I got my old pipe, and another one, but my tobacco ain't very good. And I'll say, Oh, that's all right, if it's strong enough and then you'll out with the pipes, and we'll light up just as calm, and then just see em look. By jings, that'll be gay, Tom. I wish it was now. So do I. And when we tell em we learned when we was off pirating, won't they wish they'd been along? Oh, I reckon not. I'll just bet they will. So the talk ran on, but presently it began to flag a trifle, and grow disjointed. The silences widened, the expectoration marvellously increased. Every pore inside the boys' cheeks became a spouting fountain. They could scarcely bail out the cellars under their tongues fast enough to prevent an inundation. Little overflowings down their throats occurred in spite of all they could do, and sudden retchings followed every time. 
Both boys were looking very pale and miserable now. Joe's pipe dropped from his nerveless fingers. Tom's followed. Both fountains were going furiously, and both pumps bailing with might and main. Joe said feebly, "'I lost my knife. I reckon I better go and find it.' Tom said, with quivering lips and halting utterance, "'I'll help you. You go over that way, and I'll hunt around by the spring. No, you needn't come, Huck. We can find it.' So Huck sat down again, and waited an hour. Then he found it lonesome, and went to find his comrades. They were wide apart in the woods, both very pale, both fast asleep. But something informed him that if they had had any trouble they had got rid of it. They were not talkative at supper that night. They had a humble look, and, when Huck prepared his pipe after the meal, and was going to prepare theirs, they said no, they were not feeling very well. Something they ate at dinner had disagreed with them. Chapter Six from The Stolen White Elephant, 1878 Describing an Elephant There are cases in detective history to show that criminals have been detected through peculiarities in their appetites. Now, what does this elephant eat, and how much? Well, as to what he eats, he will eat anything. He will eat a man, he will eat a Bible, he will eat anything between a man and a Bible. Good, very good indeed, but too general. Details are necessary, details are the only valuable thing in our trade. Very well, as to men, at one meal, or, if you prefer, during one day, how many men will he eat, if fresh? He would not care whether they were fresh or not. At a single meal he would eat five ordinary men. Very good, five men. We will put that down. What nationalities would he prefer? He is indifferent about nationalities. He prefers acquaintances, but is not prejudiced against strangers. Very good. Now, as to Bibles. How many Bibles would he eat at a meal? He would eat an entire edition. Now, that is more exact. I will put that down. Very well. He likes men and Bibles. So far, so good. What else will he eat? I want particulars. He will leave Bibles to eat bricks. He will leave bricks to eat bottles. He will leave bottles to eat clothing. He will leave clothing to eat cats. He will leave cats to eat oysters. He will leave oysters to eat ham. He will leave ham to eat sugar. He will leave sugar to eat pie. He will leave pie to eat potatoes. He will leave potatoes to eat bran. He will leave bran to eat hay. He will leave hay to eat oats. He will leave oats to eat rice, for he was mainly raised on it. There is nothing whatever he will not eat but European butter, and he would eat that if he could taste it. Very good. General quantity at a meal, say, about, well, anywhere from a quarter to a half a ton. And he drinks everything that is fluid, milk, water, whiskey, molasses, castor oil, camphene, carbolic acid. It is no use to go into particulars. Whatever fluid occurs to you, set it down. He will drink anything that is fluid, except European coffee. End of chapters 5 and 6